0: Matthew chapter seventeen. There was a line in that hymnal, and forgive me, I should have carried a hymnal with me up here. Yes. So, what was that? Three ninety-five. How you all doing today? Everybody awake? Ready to roll? It's gonna snow. It's gonna rain. I know there's a lot of people missing today, and I think I think maybe the storm sh- uh, scared some of them away. But I could tell you, I had I I I maybe people were looking at me like what? But 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 you know there's a parade in town, and so some of the kids like whether involved with the, uh, the marching bands or the Girl Scouts or, or Boy Scouts or whatever things, they're kind of drawn into that. And, of course, we still have, we have a number of people that are on the mend, a few that were going to try to make it today, but, but walking on potentially slippery ground was uh, risky. And, and so definitely the prudent and right thing to do was to, to stay home and stay in. But, but nevertheless, uh, here we are, and uh, we're here, and we're with the Lord and, you know, just, just decide right now. You're going to hear from God today. You understand? Decide that by faith. And that's really what the, the message here is about. Like this hymn that we just sang, it said, uh, help me to walk aright, more by faith, less by sight. Right? And that's the teaching of the Lord. We don't walk by sight. We don't look around, and we're not swayed either positively or negatively, dramatically, simply by what we see with our eyes. We walk by, listen very closely, we walk by what's going on in here because of our relationship with God. That's what it is to walk by faith. It is to live every moment trusting in Him. He's sovereign. He is God. He is everlasting. He changes not. And we trust in Him and every moment that we live, and every moment that we walk, should be lived and walked, trusting in Him, right? The Lord is not shaken. The Lord is not shaken by anything. No matter what came up in your life that may have tended to shake you, as soon as that happens, you just remind yourself, the Lord knew that was coming. And the Lord allows it to happen because maybe He wants your faith to grow or or maybe he knows you can handle it, or whatever reason, he has his purposes that he's going to work out, but we walk by faith, because the end of this walk is what? What's the end of this walk? Salvation, regardless of what comes up in the middle of it, the end of it is salvation, because of what Christ. that's what Christ died to purchase, right? I was talking with Bob Halliday yesterday about this, was about how the lord purchased us but he hasn't received us fully yet you know what i mean like we're his but we're not with him like physically yet and we haven't been changed into what we're ultimately going to in glory be changed into so we're his purchased possession that he hasn't like fully totally in its final form acquired yet and we often think about how great it's going to be for us when we one day wake up in glory, as they say, right? And we're with him and we're transformed. But think about how great a day for him that's going to be. Think about that, right? Jesus who redeemed us is one day going to gather us to himself. And the day is coming when what the word says about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You know, that that day is coming. And think of what a day for Jesus that is going to be, right? I mean, amazing. Imagine just like being in Jesus' shoes for one moment and knowing that, you know, you ascended back to heaven. Some angels gave the promise to your first disciples that you were going to return one day, knowing that the last time you were here, you were betrayed you were mocked, you were lied about, you were slandered, you were blasphemed, you were turned over, handed over, you were physically beaten beyond recognition, crucified, and died. And then after rising from the dead and offering this gift of salvation to everyone in the world, the world with its words and its mouths and everything for the last 2,000 years has continued to mock, to disbelieve, you know, and everything else. But then You know, and and you see it. It just goes on in the world. It goes on in every corner. People are cruel to each other. People are unloving. There's no faith anywhere in the world. And just to think, though, one day, Jesus, if you think yourself as Him for one moment, you're going to return one day and there's going to be this great vindication and glory. And you're going to receive every single one of your Father's elect that has come to faith in you, and you're going to then dwell for all eternity with everyone who just loves you and worships you. If you could just like kind of try to imagine being Jesus for one moment and talking about the anticipation of that day, right? I mean, that's awesome. And we get to be in on that. And so what do we do as we're leading? We walk by faith. More by faith, less by sight. In this passage of Scripture today, this is what Jesus ends up teaching about. And I was looking back through some of the sermon titles that I've done over the last several months. And I did one called Believe. I did one called Faith, Our Most Precious Possession, or The Most Important Thing You've Got, I think is what I called it. I did one called Jesus Teaches About Faith. And then, so I was running out of, like, titles that deal with the things I could call you know, Jesus teaching about faith. But here, here is what it is again. An event occurs. An event that is a very difficult thing. Well, it's not even a single event for the man who's involved. He has a son who is in really bad shape, which we'll look at in a minute. And he comes to Jesus' disciples hoping that his son, who has been afflicted with whatever he had from, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute too, whatever he had from birth, can be healed because he's heard no doubt about all these miraculous healings and such that have happened. And at first it doesn't happen. And this not, not getting that healing that he was looking for at first, it creates this occasion where Jesus ends up teaching some powerful words about faith. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, So, Let me say a prayer, and then I'm going to read in Matthew 17, starting in verse 14, okay? Let's bow before the Lord and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, we thank you so much now that we can be together here today. And like we just cried out in our hymn, teach us to walk more by faith and less by sight. Teach us, Lord God, to cherish our faith in you as the most precious thing in our lives. Teach us, we pray, Lord, to nurture it, to grow in it, to stand in it, knowing that just as we know our faith in you is the most precious thing we have, so our enemy knows that as well. And so, all sorts of forms of discouragements and attacks against our faith. And we don't even recognize them as attacks on our faith, but that's what they are. These things arise. The storms arise, Lord God. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to remain steadfast and strong in our faith, knowing that we don't have it in and of ourselves to do that, but that strength and that power comes from you and is in you, is in your spirit, in us, And, Lord, we should just walk closely with you and trust in you and walk more by faith and less by sight. Help us to see and understand what you taught about on this one particular occasion, Lord God, and help us to be edified by it and then to be doers of your word and not only hearers of it. Thank you, Lord. We call upon you for your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now listen to this from Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14. "'And when they had come to the multitude, "'a man came to him, kneeling down to him, "'and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, "'for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, "'for he often falls into the fire "'and often into the water. "'So I brought him to your disciples.'" but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, "O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So there are obviously some very powerful lessons about faith in all of that. And let's just start right in the beginning and look at the story. You know, it's funny, it's, it's, a lot of people might, at a quick glance, read this passage of scripture and place the emphasis on the healing and try to figure out what 's going on and, and and why does it what, what, what do we mean here by the that he was epileptic and, and all these things he used to do, and the disciples couldn 't cast it out and and then Jesus just came and rebuked the demon and it left and and you might, you might try to figure out, like, what's the role of, like, demons and all of this and try to stop. But that's not the main point of the passage, is it? The main point of the passage is the teaching moment. You use that phrase with your children sometimes. But for Jesus, this becomes a great teaching moment for him. And it's the teaching that speaks to all of us. Because what was at work here was faith. The lack of it, and, uh, and then, of course, Jesus teaching about how it ought to be so prominent in our own lives. And it ought to create in you, as a Christian, all sorts of questions about my faith and where is it at and where I'm at? And how does it grow? And, and well, Jesus teaches about all of these things. So let's just kind of talk our way through the passage here and, and learn what it is that Jesus is teaching about faith here today. It starts off by saying, when they had come to the multitude. Now, to to really, this is one of those passages that appears in multiple Gospels. You have uh, Mark giving us an account that records a great deal more detail um, on this. And then you have Luke giving an account which is a little shorter than this one, but has a detail or two that this one doesn't. And the way Matthew words this, he says, When they had come to the multitude, the one interesting detail that Luke adds that Matthew or Mark does not is that he says the next day when they came. So the idea is this is the day after what? It's the day after they were up on the mountain. And Mark actually describes the fact that they come down from the mountain. They were up on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't be put off by the fact that it took us three weeks to study through that passage. It took us three weeks to study from one day to the next because so many things happened that were worth teaching about. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and uh, when he was up there, he was transfigured, and you know all that story. Uh, And then there was some more teaching that he did on their way down from the mountain after he told them, you know, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead, and he does some more teaching. And when he comes down, this is the scene that greets him. When he comes down from the mountain, what Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us is that he's greeted by a multitude, a multitude of people. And one of the things that Mark points out that Matthew does not is that uh, his disciples, when he comes down, he finds them in an argument with the scribes, right? And we had just, what's amazing about that is in the previous passage that we studied last week, um, we talked about Elijah and what the question they had was, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first, right? And so after explaining all of that, then when they arrive down at the bottom of the mountain, it's the next day, and they arrive to a scene where the rest of the disciples are in this argument about the, uh, 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 about, well, it doesn't really say what it's about, but presumably it's about Jesus perhaps being the Messiah and why this healing that they were uh, trying to do didn't occur, and so naturally, when the multitude that has gathered for all of this stuff that is going on sees Jesus coming down from the mountain, Peter, James, and John in tow, right? What do they do? They get very, very excited, and they rush over to Jesus, right? And it says here, when they had come to the multitude, it says a man came to him. It actually says in one of the other accounts that the man shouted out from the crowd, right? A man came to him, knelt down before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. And I think some of the more modern versions of this render the word epileptic, the way it says epileptic in the New King James Version, it just says that uh, he was subject to seizures. He used to have seizures all the time. But I think using the word epileptic or using the word seizures makes it sound merely like it's sort of a physical ailment that the guy suffers from. We know from going through the passage that it's actually a physical manifestation of a demon that's possessing him. The old King James Version actually renders it the word lunatic. But you, if you have any sort of study Bible, um, I know I, I'm reading a New King James study Bible, any sort of study Bible that like kind of gives you the occasional better rendering of a word the the literal translation is moonstruck moonstruck which is basically a loose term uh, like technically officially what moonstruck means is somehow you're affected by the moon right something that the moon does like affects you like, but the word more commonly just in loose language when somebody was moonstruck it meant that they were basically out of their mind they couldn't think straight. And the word gets used even in like a romantic way, like someone is moonstruck when they're in love with like, you know, someone else. They, they, can't, they can't think straight, right? But that was the idea here, is this is the way the guy described his own son. Basically, he can't think straight at all. And he has these seizures all the time. And you see, they're, they're very serious. They're, in fact, they're very life-threatening, right? Because it says that he'll throw himself into a fire or he'll throw himself into water. Right so his so this guy's own condition is endangering his very life and imagine what a tremendous hopeful moment it was for this man when he realized that the disciples of Jesus, I mean, by this time in Christ's ministry, the word about him had spread, that he had done all these incredible miracles, and, and there were so many people that had been healed in the area of Galilee, uh, that, that when this man hears that, oh, Jesus' disciples are nearby, this is it, this is my chance. This is my chance for the first time in my life to see my son well. And so he brings his son to Jesus, not to Jesus, but to Jesus' disciples, right? And they're not able to do it. And not only are they not able to to bring the healing that he's looking for, but they're standing there arguing with the scribes. And so this is not the scene that this, this man expected with his son, perhaps not what the crowd, the multitude that was gathered around, certainly not what they were used to seeing when Jesus was there. Now, in the midst of all of that, Jesus arrives, having come down from the mountain, and the crowd basically rushes him. And here comes this man stepping forth, kneeling down before him in act of worship itself, an act of faith, look, calling him Lord, Lord, have mercy on my son, which itself is a great expression of faith, right? And he comes and he kneels down and he says what he says to him. Now, Jesus answers and says, and this is, this is where it gets interesting because if you read the other two gospel accounts of this, it's clear that Jesus is answering the man directly. So his words are, are he's, he's physically in the moment speaking to the man, but clearly he's speaking for the purpose of everyone around him who can hear. And in my view, I would say he is speaking down through the ages And he's even describing today because this has always been true. Jesus could look at any time and with amazement and with wonder and with a disappointed awe because of what he has accomplished, say, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? You should sense some exasperation in those words when Christ shares those words, right? And I would say to you again, it seems like a bit too strong of rebuke just for the man because like the man's faith would seem to be somewhat impressive. And I think you can fairly say that the man's faith was because Jesus does go on to heal his son, right? And the man called him Lord. The man knelt down before him. The man made the effort of bringing his son to Jesus' disciples and then even forcing his way through the crowd and shouting out from the crowd when Jesus showed up. So there is faith in this man. And though not recorded in Matthew, I I keep saying one of the other accounts, and you you just have to trust me and go and read. You can start in Mark. I'm not going to do it for time's sake today, but you can start in Luke 17, 13. You can start in Mark 19, 14. But but they they all record the same story with just a little detail here or there that's added or or missing or whatever. When you put it all together and make, make one comprehensive picture, this is the man who says the very famous line, Lord... I help, uh, Lord, I believe, help what? Help my unbelief. So even though this man does have, what would appear from the circumstantial evidence that you can read from the text, does have faith, there is something lacking there as well. And so he calls upon the Lord to help him with that. But with that said, my main point in, in, in bringing that up is that when Jesus says perverse generation he's obviously not just speaking to that guy, right? It would seem to me that even though he's answering him, it would seem to me that he's speaking beyond that. And I don't think he's speaking just to his disciples either because his disciples come to him privately after this and then he addresses them. He's speaking to the whole multitude. And I believe these words should echo down through the centuries to today. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Right? Think of all that Jesus has done. Think of where you are with God. The hope of everlasting life, the promise of everlasting life, entirely by his grace, all his effort, all his power not one iota of contribution from you or i we simply trust in him that's it we put our faith in him all the work is done by him we believe christ died for our sins according to the scriptures was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures we put our faith in christ and what he did and we are saved from our sins and yet when you look across the world and you look down through history, seemingly so few people believe. And in today's day and age, so many people hear. In the, in the, in the modern information uh, sharing world that we live in, this is something that is constantly going on, even from our little church here, I think about over the years, all of the events and all of the things that have been done, not just in my pastorate, but for the, the decades before that, in this little street corner ministry that we have here that's just been going on and on and on. When I think about all of the people who were touched by the gospel, you're not, you're not going to believe this, but I was actually, uh, my wife was cleaning out some old stuff and she found a church annual report from 1974 in 1974 at the time there were 49 members of the church right which is actually as far as formal members goes is a little more than we have now but uh but my my guess is back then they were probably with membership a little more attentive to it with than than we have been which is something we probably need to straighten out But, but it's probably an indication that the actual size of the church was comparable to ours and and uh I was reading through this report and like the different ministries in the church used to just write a single page about like their ministry and then they put it all together and at their annual meeting they passed it out pretty good practice maybe we ought to try doing that sometime from year to year but but anyway the uh, the uh, the the, uh, probably the reason it was in uh, the Divisia archives uh, was because uh, the vacation Bible school director that year was my wife's mother. Right. So she had written this page about vacation Bible school and and uh, it was funny. It was 1974. The the entire amount of money that they spent on vacation Bible school was like fourteen (laughs) dollars. And their average attendance each night was seventy seven. If you can imagine here in this building, I I, I, listen, we don't have seventy seven people here now. I can't even imagine seventy seven children. Right. But, like, I think about that. They, one night they had 89, it said. How do you do that? How do you get 89 children into this building? I don't know, but they did. And, and it's like, you know, I mean, just every square inch of the place must have been used, you know. But what does that say? It, it reminds me that down through the ages, this tiny little street corner ministry has just been giving out this message of the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And we do it different than they do it. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way that we do it. We do our thing, you know? We do our vacation Bible school. We do our dinners. We do our picnics. We do our stuff, you know, where, we, where we're like trying inviting people in and inviting people to the gospel, to the message of the gospel, Right? And we're doing it. We do it in our church services. We're doing it. We had a great time last Sunday night at our Thanksgiving dinner, giving out the gospel. We had some people very well respond to that and come up to me and ask for more information and prayer after it was over. And I sat here praying with a group of visitors you know, after we were done on the service on last Sunday night. It was awesome. It was, it was just really a great... But that's been going on for years and years and years here and in every other church where Christians love the Bible and preach the truth of God's word. It's been going on in the lives of individual Christians who are faithful to God's call to share the gospel with people. The message is just spread and spread and spread and spread, and still there's so little faith in all of the earth. That's the point, is Jesus did what he did, has had Ministry after ministry, preacher after preacher, child after child, child of God after child of God, brother, sister after brother, sister in Christ. Everywhere in the world, down through the ages, preaching the message of who he is and what he did. And that God, though we are hopelessly sinful against him, his grace is there through what Christ accomplished. That if a person will trust in him, if a person will come to Faith in Him, they will be saved. And so few have. It is rejected. It is ignored. Even in churches, if we're not careful, we get bored with it. We get tired of it. We get tired of hearing it again and again. Man, would to God, God forbid that we grow leery of the thing that is the source of our salvation and our daily comfort that Jesus died for our sins but faithless and perverse generation may i say to you that is not at least the evangelistic portion of the great commission the great commission being to make disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of jesus and Step one is the evangelistic mission to preach the gospel and baptize those new converts in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then discipleship, the process beyond that is to teach them to observe whatsoever things He has commanded us, right? But that first part of it is not that first part of it, the evangelization portion of it, to call the world to faith. The very faith that we ourselves stand in, the very faith that we ourselves possess as a gift from God, the message of the gospel is a call to faith, right? We're sinful. We can't do anything to save ourselves. God's wrath abides on us. But because of what Christ accomplished, if you will humble yourself and come to Him in faith, believing and trusting in Him... You will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will have the gift of everlasting life. This world which is on blindly, driverlessly, on cruise control to its own destruction. You will be saved from it. And now your your mission as a Christian is to go out and call the rest of the world to it. Call them to faith. That's the mission of the gospel. And so here's Jesus standing here. And you say, what does this have to do with Jesus healing a guy? It has everything to do with it. Listen, what was the purpose of Jesus healing? You know that the the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the suffering of Messiah, famously said, by his stripes, we're healed, right? And of course, one of the Gospels picks that up in describing Jesus healing and saying that his his physical healing was like an outward healing manifesting sign of what isaiah had said by his stripes we are healed but ultimately the call of the gospel is not to bring physical healing to people right because if somebody gets sick and then they get healed they still grow old and die right so obviously physical healing isn't the end of anything right but it's a picture of the fact that we are healed from our sin. And all of Jesus' miracles, casting the demon out of this young boy, casting demons out of other people, healing people of blindness and of other infirmities. Listen, what was the first miracle that Jesus did? Of all the things, he turned water into wine. They run out of wine at a wedding, you know, and without going into all the details of his mother's role and all that and everything else tells them there are six water pots, gigantic water pots, 20 or 30 gallons each. Imagine that, stone water pots. Fill them up with water, no hose, no faucet, no nothing, a bucket at a time, or however they drew water from the well, right? Fill these things up, and then draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, and he tastes the water which had been made wine. He's like, whoa, you kept the best wine until now. But what's the real takeaway from that? The end of that passage in John chapter 2, it says, thus Jesus manifested himself to them and his disciples put their faith in him. That's the point of all of these signs. All of these physical signs that Jesus did were to manifest his power and his ability to be able to save people for eternity. He saved a wedding feast, if you will. He saved a young boy from a life of being moonstruck. He saved, in John chapter 9, the man from being blind. He saved uh, people who were healed from various sicknesses. And sometimes it says, every single person they brought to me, he laid his hands on them, and every one of them is healed. But every one of them is gone from the earth. They grew old and they died physically, right? Right? But, so what was that a picture of? That was an in-time, temporal picture of what he could really do, which was what? He can save you for all eternity. He can save your soul for all eternity. That's the message of the gospel. And the purpose of his miracles was to show that he could do that. And now our call is to recognize that him doing these things, our call now is to go out and invite the world to come to him. Because through faith, through faith. now and and listen the lord can still heal things and the lord does still heal things he heals things in response to our prayers sometimes he may intervene in a miraculous way sometimes he may just guide and provide and heal through what we con- would consider more natural ways through the through the uh wisdom and insight that he's granted to men to understand certain treatments and such So it's not to dismiss the value of God's ability to miraculously heal, because obviously, absolutely, he does. We have testimonies of it in our own little congregation that the Lord has done that. But listen, the bigger picture, like Jesus isn't speaking to a single man and criticizing the entire generation. His words are obviously for the entire generation, right? Just like, you know, the bigger picture Of his power to heal is to show that he has power through all the ages and in every corner of the earth to bring forgiveness of sin and permanent, eternal salvation to anyone who has faith in him. Call the world to faith, that is the call of the gospel. And Jesus is there, exasperated, oh, faithless and perverse. Perverse means crooked. You're so crooked in your thinking, they're standing there and they're arguing. What good was their arguing doing? Maybe the, maybe, the, maybe the scribes were making their point. Well, the Scripture says that Elijah must come first, just like we saw last week. This can't possibly be the Messiah. The Scripture says Elijah comes first. Where's Elijah? Can't possibly be him. And they're standing, and maybe they're arguing about this, or they're arguing about that, or they're arguing about some theological point that they think they're really, really right about. Meanwhile, they're standing in the middle of a faithless and crooked generation. Crooked because for all of their professed knowledge and all of their boastings about their understanding of God, there was no faith, and faith is the one single thing that brings a person into a reconciled relationship with God. There is nothing else. There is no deed. There is no religion. There is no sacrament. There is no good work. There's no amount of repentance or mourning or, or confession or anything that brings you into reconciliation with God. By His grace, the only way that we are saved is through faith in Him. And so when Jesus says here, Oh, faithless and crooked generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? I told you before, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. for just a Imagine being Jesus and doing what He did and wondering, why does nobody listen? Listen, I as a preacher sometimes, you know, we, every preacher, you as a witness... You trying to witness to people, you must sometimes wonder, you know, you pray for that co-worker or you pray for that family member and you wait for God to give you an open door to go and share the gospel with them. And you go and you share the gospel with them or you get involved in some church. You go to a street fair or you come to a a dinner and you've invited people to come and you, you so want the people in your life to hear the word and be saved. You wait for that door to open you know, and you go and you share the gospel with them. And what do you find so often? Resistance, 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 resistance. Why? Is it because you did a bad job? That's a faithless and crooked generation. God will save every one of his elect. Everyone. Our job is to take the message out and call them to faith. Because faith is the only thing that brings salvation. Faith in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Faith in His blood. Faith in what He did. Faith that He died and fully, completely took the wrath of God in my place for my sins. And rose from the dead and is currently right now alive and well, alive forevermore. The Jesus the Messiah will come again one day. Faith in Him is the only thing that brings salvation. Now, if for you it becomes exasperating because you try to preach and you try to share and you try to reach out and it seems that nobody responds, imagine for the Lord what it must be like to have endured all of that. Imagine in this, in, in this small micro moment that we're reading about, imagine what it must be like that to walk to come down and see a bunch of guys arguing about something when you're right there you know what i mean like right in front of you the messiah they're arguing about you and you and you and you're right there you know and and like and like nobody believes listen don't be dissuaded don't be discouraged don't be discouraged Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your heart fixed on Christ. Teach me to walk more by faith and less by sight, we just sang. Get your eyes off of your physical surroundings and turn your physical eyes into spiritual eyes. See as God sees. Oh, yes. If you walk closely with the Lord, he will show you that. If you walk closely with God, you will, listen, I mean consistently, devotedly, worshipfully, humbly as the priority, the single priority of your life. Learn to walk closely with God. You and God walk faithfully before the Lord. You will begin to see things as he sees. And then you'll begin to be less troubled by the things you see with your physical eyes because you'll, you'll understand things spiritually. Oh, you'll still be disturbed. I mean, Jesus is exasperated here, right? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Those are exasperated words, man. You know? You know? I, mean, I mean, you're with someone and you're frustrated. How long am I going to put up with you? I mean, we, we, in, our, in our impatience, I'm not justifying saying such a thing to anybody, but sometimes we've been tempted to say something like that or we, or we actually have. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here, man. He's exasperated, you know? But listen, learn to look through the spiritual eyes. Paul spoke of praying for the Ephesians, I think it was, that God would open the eyes of their understanding. That's what we want. Walk closely with him. Now, don't be discouraged by the faithlessness around you. Instead, speak to it in the authority of Jesus. Yes? What is the Great Commission? To go and make disciples? But what does Jesus preface the Great Commission by saying? Nope, 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 good. That's where it goes, but what did? he prefaces it by saying, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? You go out in the authority of your Savior and you speak into the faithlessness. You speak into the crookedness, the words of truth, the words of grace, the word of Christ, and you call people to faith. And you get discouraged then by nothing because it's God's work. To just preach it is God's work. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. So the first point in all of that is that faith is lacking in the world. But our call as Christians is to speak to it. Now, what then happens Verse 18 tells us simply that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured that very hour. Imagine that. Imagine that. And that's amazing, right? Luke's gospel tells us that the whole multitude just stood there amazed, just out of their minds with amazement that this happened. The scene scene is not given the details in Matthew The scene is that they brought the boy before Jesus, and when he got before Jesus, immediately went down to the ground and convulsed with a very violent convulsion, like a seizure just took hold of him, which is why the translators chose to describe moonstruck as like seizures or epilepsy because of the manifest. But really what happened was the demon inside this young boy recognized who he was in the presence of, Isn't that something? Not all of the people standing there recognize it, but this demon sure did. And then Jesus just rebuked the demon. What did he say? I don't know. He rebuked the demon. And that very hour, the kid was fine. Right? And that's, like I said, the healing, that physical healing is a picture of salvation. You may not see it in a person's life But spiritually, because of sin, we're all moonstruck. We are. We can't think straight. We go from pleasure to pleasure. You know, the hymn we just sang said, when earthly joys depart was one of the last. We're not even supposed to be living for earthly joys. God may grant us seasons of joy or moments of joy here on earth and you receive them with thanksgiving. You keep them holy. You keep them sanctified uh, in your mind and in your heart and don't get like obsessed with it. But, but you know, we're devoted to trusting in the Lord and he has these, We're trusting in his holiness is really what it is. Look, he says, the very hour the kid was cured, the very hour, the very moment someone comes and puts their faith in Jesus, what happens? The same thing. They're cured. By his stripes, we're healed. It's what it's a picture of. Just as Jesus had power over that demon to just rebuke it and speak it, and boom, it was gone. So when a person puts their faith in Jesus, that spiritual epilepsy, that spiritual inclination to seizures, that spiritual inclination to just go from pleasure to pleasure, go from carnal experience to carnal, frustrated through life, hopelessly, blindly going through life. The minute that God opens a person's heart to the gospel and they put their faith in him, it's just like this. Boom, gone, finished in an instant transformed, passed from death to life, right? That's what the healing is a picture of. Now, what happens is then, here's where the really heavy teaching about faith comes in. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately. So now now we've gone from Jesus standing in front of this man and his son and in speaking like in exasperation in front of this faithless crowd representative of an entire perverse and crooked generation now he's with his circle now he's with his his men his chosen ones his disciples and they come to him privately and they ask him why could we not cast it out and you know maybe that was hard for them right to to understand why why couldn't we do it and lord in the presence of the scribes of all people you know, it seemed, it, maybe it seemed to them like this gave a little ammunition to the scribes to argue more, you know, which serving the purposes of Satan. Just get everyone distracted with an argument and miss the real important thing that's going on, which is the Son of God's power is at work right in your presence showing you the salvation that is available if you'll put your faith in Him. All that squabbling, that's what it always does, you know. Always. Always. It distorts people's plain view of the gospel message, which is all that really matters, right? And whose purposes are served when that's done, not the Lord's. And that's the same thing that's going on here. So they come to him, why, why couldn't we cast it out? And then verse 20 tells us this. Because of your unbelief or your lack of faith. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I'll come to verse 21 in a moment. Now, this is not to be confused with the parable of the mustard seed. In the the section where there is the uh, long list of parables, which we've gone through, chapter 13, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, there's speckled throughout there, mostly chapter 13. What you see there is among a list of parables, there's a parable of the mustard seed. But in those parables, what's being described? Those are parables that were all about the kingdom, right? So the parable of the mustard seed that Jesus taught about the kingdom was that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of the seeds. It gets planted. It grows up into the greatest of all plants. The birds of the air come and they make their nests in it. Now Jesus is using here the concept of the mustard seed slightly differently. Now he's using the concept of the mustard seed to describe what? The faith of an individual. Whereas before he used the mustard seed to describe the kingdom of God and how it grows, now he's using the mustard seed to describe the faith of an individual Christian. Let me ask you a question. What does a mustard seed do to turn itself into the greatest of all the herbs that the birds of the air can even put their nests into it what does the mustard seed do what does it do it does nothing it doesn't do anything what does it do it, it doesn't plant itself right so, so so somebody so somebody at some point plants it or it falls into the ground or whatever then water comes and the sun comes and it grows maybe a farmer or and, and herbalist comes and, and prunes, or I don't know, I don't know anything about all that. But it doesn't do anything. If you were a mustard seed and you wanted to grow up, what did you need? What do you need to do? You need to trust. That's it. You just need to trust. You need to trust that the sun's going to rise the next day. You, can, you need to trust that it's going to rain enough. You need to trust that the natural processes by which a seed becomes a plant, are going to work right. But you don't have anything to do with it. It's all designed by God. Think about that. Think about the miracle of that, that God, from the very beginning, designed these processes by which vegetation grows and provides food for all of the living things on the earth. Think about that. What's the mustard seed's role in that? Nothing just to lay there and trust everything that's going on around it. Jesus says that's a picture of what your faith needs to be. Trust him. Trust him for everything. Trust him in anything. Trust him implicitly and explicitly. Trust him completely and trust him totally. Faith. It's the most amazing thing. It's the most priceless possession that we have, is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's describing here is a faith that is eminently what practical so while we talk about faith being the very thing that unites us with god and leads to eternal life here jesus is describing faith as something that is practical in the life of one of his children right here's why you couldn't cast it out because of you have little faith because of your unbelief and i say to you if you have faith as a mustard seed you will say to this mountain get out of here right? I mean, Jesus had just come down from a mountain, right? So perfect backdrop. They're standing there in a region where there's mountains. And Jesus said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you can just look at the mountain, maybe the mountain that he just walked down from. You can look just look at that mountain right there. You can just say to it, move, and it'll move. Is he being literal? It's not my place to ever say that Jesus isn't even literal, but obviously he's trying to make a point, right? He's using it to make a point. Our faith is something that we should walk through life exercising. Everything that comes up in our life, every mountain, as they say, that may arise in our lives, every difficulty, every trial, every storm, with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we can face them all and walk through them all. Here it says nothing will be impossible to you. Does that, listen, does that mean the outcome of every difficulty is going to occur exactly the way you wish it to? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. God can do anything. It says here nothing will be impossible. But the real issue is to come through trials and to come through difficulties and to come through every experience in life with your faith solid and intact, recognizing the will of god having joy still having the assurance of your eternal salvation look every trouble that arises in this life every trouble from the most severe to to the seemingly just the 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 basic daily nuisances that come up every difficulty in this life is temporary isn't that great isn't that great to know oh man is this happening again well it is but the day is coming when it's not going to happen anymore whatever it is. And so we have faith in the Lord. And if you have faith like a mustard seed that just implicitly and completely and totally trusts, you can go through it. You can come through it. I'm not, again, saying that every single thing that comes up is going to work out exactly the way that you wish it to. But you can have strength in your heart. You can have peace that passes all understanding You can have joy that is inexpressible. These are all promises made to the Christian that are delivered through faith, faith in him. So first point, we talked about the world being called to faith in Jesus. Now we're talking about disciples, Christians being called to faith in Jesus. Trust him, trust him. Why can't I just seem to get through this? Why do I find myself always grappling with doubts and fears and anxieties? Why do I always find myself so overcome with this or overcome with that that it's paralyzing to me? Listen, your faith needs to increase. Your faith needs to grow. You need to give yourself more to those things that God, by his grace, has given to us, which increase our faith. More time in His Word, more times, less time, less time, just dabbling in all of the delights of this world, and more time spent in a close relationship with Him. More time in prayer. Even that's where this passage goes. Even, even here, as He's speaking to them about faith, He says this kind can't come out except with faith, uh, with prayer, and with fasting. So, so like that's like the exercise of your faith. But your faith needs to grow and to be strong. And, as your, and, and sometimes it's those trials that make our faith grow strong and the process of going through those trials that cause us to grow in our faith. But you need to walk closely with the Lord. You know, that's why the Lord would look down through the ages and say, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Because he's he's promised every spiritual blessing in Christ in himself. He's promised every spiritual blessing in himself to his children. And still we don't walk by faith. We walk by sight. Still we don't walk spiritually. We walk carnally. Listen, we're talking about faith being practical. If you want your Christianity to work, you ever been tempted to say like, listen, I understand it, but Christianity just doesn't work for me. And a lot of times people walk away from the faith because of that. That's tragic. Look, you need to walk closely with the Lord. I know it's like a broken record. I come back every week telling you that. But the message never changes. No matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what it is that we're looking at, no matter what it is that we're studying, the message for the believing always comes back to meditate on his word, diligent and constant in prayer. Much time in fellowship and in shared ministry, which is what fellowship really is, sharing, shared service with other Christians. Much time devoted to those things that stir up your spirit, that stir up love, that stir up faith and cause it to grow. Those are the things that will give you strength that you need to say to a mountain, get out of here, and it'll move, right? This may be looking into it a little too much, but Jesus didn't say, say to the mountain, be removed and the mountains eliminated. The mountains just put somewhere else. And that's what happens. It's not about getting every difficulty and every trial fixed the way that you want it, it's about getting it out of the way so that your relationship with God remains strong and vibrant and correct the alt, listen 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 the ultimate manifestation of christianity is not a trouble free life it is a life that can walk through trouble with love and with grace and with patience and with faith the christian life is not a life without pain The Christian life is a life that can, though, stand in the face of and endure pain because our relationship with God is stronger than anything that this world could stir up in front of us. That's the mountain. That's the mountain. The mountain is anything that could bump you off of your faith and your walk and your relationship with God. Because in the end, The fact that this disease was healed or this financial trouble was taken care of or this or that or this, this relationship was fixed. In the end, those aren't the things that are going to matter. In the end, what's going to matter is that you walked closely with God and your heart is filled with his love and your heart is mature and built up and immovable and steadfast because you have a strong confident, bold faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's not a life where every trouble is taken out of the way. You can even make the case that if you have a life that has every trouble taken out of the way, what kind of faith is that? Anybody can do that. Trouble-free life. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. How are you of good cheer when you have trouble? Faith. Trusting him. Brothers and sisters, apply yourself with all diligence to those things that God has given to us which will stir up our faith. Nothing will be impossible to you. I can't go through. Listen, I can't go through this again. That will not even be in your lexicon anymore. The trouble might be there. But the I can't go through this won't be because you can, because you can. You can speak to it and get it out of the way. If you have faith, that's what he says. You understand? You understand? Verse 21 then teaches us about the importance of prayer and fasting. And in spite of the fact that some study Bibles will have a note that says some ancient translations don't include the words and fasting, I would just submit to you that that prayer and fasting are practices that go hand in hand. The important thing is that you're praying. Whatever your practice of fasting may be, I, 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 I see that in the Bible as something that If you detect that God in the Spirit is calling you to fast for this or for that, for this amount of time, that amount of time, then you respond to God. There's no legislation concerning that. There is concerning prayer. Prayer is like all the time. Pray without ceasing. Simple as that, right? Pray, pray, pray. But it might even seem a contradiction if you read it too quick where Jesus says, it's because of your unbelief that you couldn't cast it out but then turns around and says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, well, well which is it? Is it because of my unbelief or is, or is it because we didn't pray and fast? Well, I would say to you, obviously what? That those two things are hand in hand. You can't separate those things. What is faith? Faith is trusting in God. What is prayer? Prayer is the ultimate exercise of that trust in God. When you pray, what are you doing? You're talking to someone you've never seen before. You're talking to someone whose voice you physically have never heard before. You're trusting that he hears you. You're trusting in his power to answer. Prayer is like the ultimate expression of our faith. Prayer, along with meditation on God's word, is like the number one faith grower that exists you walk closely with God. When you pray, you speak to him, you listen to him. The Bible even says that, and you know this in Romans 8, that there are times when we're in prayer, when we're so anguished, we can't even find the words. It says the spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, we, all we can do before God is sit there silently, but we're there and we're before him. And maybe we can't find the words to utter to him. But those groanings in the spirit, he hears those. He interprets those. He receives those. He responds to those. Sometimes in the charismatic movement, they use that to describe what they call praying in tongues. There's no such thing in that passage of scripture, right? You can talk about different things that 1 Corinthians says, but certainly the passage in Romans He's talking about things which cannot be uttered, these groanings where the spirit is just over. Listen, that's communion with God. That's walking closely with God. That's praying to God, talking to God. What do you allow to get in the way of that? We all have things that maybe we allow to get in the way of spending the right time of prayer with God. And, And here while we assemble to pray here i think he's talking more about that the prayer and fasting is like obviously fasting is something you, you can't fast for somebody else right you have to do it and and the prayer here is like do, do you get to that time where you're in your room and you shut the door and you're praying to the lord in secret and the lord who hears in secret sees in secret will reward you openly are you spending that time in prayer with god this is what makes your faith increase. It's a spiritual thing. It's spiritual, the, the, the growth and increase of your faith, which is directly what he's speaking to. You little faith, you lack faith. It's because of your unbelief. Faith is not something that should be stagnant and just stay in one place. Do you know that? I mean, clearly that's true. Just, you can infer it from just this passage alone. You don't have enough faith, you need more. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is not something that should stay stagnant, it should grow. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may what? Grow thereby. So we're looking to grow in our faith. Prayer has a big place. The word of God has a big place in that. Desire to grow in your faith. Give yourself to the things which promote and stimulate that spiritual growth. They are gifts from God. To pray is a great gift from God. What do you do with it? To meditate on his word, being taught by his spirit is a great gift from God. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I had a few more things to say about that, but I want to get to the last part of this. Verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, now before I, why am I reading this? In Luke's, account of this, this this bit here is linked directly to to what's going on here. In Luke's account of this passage, he actually says, it actually says, while they were standing there in amazement over the healing of this guy, Jesus spoke to them. So all of this is going on at the same time. At the very scene of this healing, this this driving out of this demon, at that very scene and in the context of him teaching about faith, it says, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and and, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Why were they exceedingly sorrowful? Because he was going to be betrayed and killed. But what did they completely miss? What did they miss? He's going to be raised up. Whoa, right? Of course it must have been hard to hear that their beloved teacher and leader and rabbi and master and lord and friend was going to be betrayed And was going to die. But there was also what the promise of hope on the end of it, on the third day, he's going to rise again. You know, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, before he said this, Jesus said, let this sink down deep in your ears. He actually prefaced this by saying that to them, you know, really, I want you to get this. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise the reaction perhaps should have been a mix of troubled that he was going to die, but whoa, our Lord who just, just rebuked a demon that we couldn't even do anything with says, and, and for Peter, James, and John, they had just been up in the mountain, right, and seen him transformed and got that glimpse of the kingdom which was coming. Certainly the promise that he was going to rise from the dead should have like tempered their sorrow, but it wasn't. It didn't. It was exceedingly sorrowful. What's the point? Faith, I believe, yields understanding. Just as they could not, listen, 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 just as they could not cast out the demon because of their unbelief, so they could not hear everything Jesus was saying because of their unbelief even though Jesus prefaced it by saying, let this sink down deep into your ears. See, faith and understanding of the truth have this direct relationship with one another. When we learn something, we need to believe it. And as we believe things, we'll begin to learn more. And so on and so on and so on. When we read and study and learn from God's word and we believe it, we begin to grow, and we begin to read and study, and we learn more, and we believe that. And faith, knowledge and faith feed each other. They help each other. And because their faith was weak, when Jesus spoke to them, their reaction was what it only could have been, exceeding sorrow. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to say to you that even though our walk as Christians is often filled with discouragements and disappointments and difficulties and trials, don't forget what the end of it is. The end of it is the receiving of the salvation of your souls. This was used by Peter, one of the twelve, one one of the disciples who's standing there, one of the disciples who was actually up in the mountain with him was Peter and Peter wrote this you keep your finger here turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 The, 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 the big thing that's going on in First Peter is he's writing to Christians who are very persecuted, and he writes this to comfort them. Listen. In this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about how the struggle is God testing and causing their faith to grow, the very thing that we're talking about today. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Why does God allow us to go through these trials? How come, how come, how come they didn't speak to the mountain and just have the difficulties go away? Well, because that wasn't God's plan. The difficulties were part of their growth. Look, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. See, that's why faith needs to grow. We love Jesus, though we haven't seen him. Peter saw him. You and I have not... And so our faith needs to grow. And so God allows us to go through trials to test that faith, just like gold is tested in a fire and gold is purified in a fire. So your faith is tested and purified by going through the fire of difficulties and trials. And then look at the last sentence of it in verse eight. Though now you do not see him yet believing, that's faith, that's faith. Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? Because of what you're going to get. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see the place of that? The end is the thing that helps you drive through the present. The eternal future and the promise of it. What we have assurance is coming is what helps our faith then to, be, to grow and to be strong as we go through the trials now. That's why we need to walk closely with the Lord. The promise of the salvation of our souls is strength for enduring the difficulties now. Right? Faith yields understanding and understanding promote, promotes more faith. Faith ought to be a fountain, fountain of encouragement in the life of a Christian. You will have trouble. You will, if you're going to walk closely with God, don't expect the world, don't even expect the church sometimes to stand there and applaud you along the way. If you're going to walk closely with God, expect what Jesus got. Listen, listen, Jesus is walking around with the 12 and one of them is a devil. Did you forget that? Yeah. Uh, Jesus. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's encountered by little faith, lack of faith, pharisaical theological opposition, carnality, worldliness, and he just goes on and on and on. And he still just goes on and on and on, living his life through his servants. Let your faith in him be strong. Faith yields an increasing knowledge of the truth. And when believed, that knowledge increases faith and they feed each other. Because his disciples, at the moment that they came down from the mountain, were lacking in their faith... When Jesus said, I'm going to rise the third day, I'm going to rise the third day, one ear out the other, all they were was exceedingly sorrowful about the hard part of it, but didn't see the glory part of it. And the glory part of it was the end of it. The glory part of it was the ultimate result. That's true for you. Whatever you're going through now, if you're in Christ, the ultimate reality is eternity with him, eternal life. Free from all trouble. There's where the real freedom from any difficulty comes. Keep your eyes on that now and stay close to the Lord. Pray, meditate on his word. Love one another. You can help each other with this. Help each other. Choose to be in God's church, in his kingdom, an instrument of grace and a promoter of growth and a promoter of love and unity. Amen? Choose to be one that with your words and with your deeds, with everything you say, with everything you do, choose to be one who is going to promote the spiritual well-being of others. And if everybody does that, you will not only be one who does it, but you'll be the recipient of it as well. Pray, meditate, fellowship, grow, grow. Grow in your faith your most precious possession. It's awesome that Jesus healed this young boy. Of course it is. Imagine being a dad, and for your whole life, your kid can't, is throwing himself into fires and into water, and then he gets healed. It's such a great source of joy. But if your understanding of that event stops there, you've missed What's really going on? He's picturing the importance of faith and teaching us about the importance of faith, which has an eternal end, which is joy and peace with the Lord forevermore. Jed, Fanny, come on back up and lead us in our last song, please.